This week, we take a trip to New Orleans with Gabriel Knight on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 14 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As usual, I am your host, Joe, and I am finally back once again to talk about another great, great game in the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. So first things first, I really do have to apologize this week for getting the show out a little bit late. I have been on my butt sick as a dog for the whole week, and every time I sat down to kind of try and write up the podcast or record the podcast or do anything like that, I uh, honestly really just had to go and, and lay down. And uh, happily, I am feeling much, much better now. I, I just got in from uh, from a 20K run because uh, I have another, my final half marathon of the year in two weeks. So uh, I guess on that front, I'm feeling much better. And um, I won't hopefully be coughing or sniffling or anything like that during the show. If I do, I will try and edit it out because I know when I'm listening to podcasts, I don't like hearing people making all kinds of bodily noises in my ears. But uh, aside from that, I guess we should just get on to the news because as usual, I've got a lot to say about our really cool topic this week. All right, so in the news this week, we've got a couple of things, mostly uh, Kickstarter projects. So I got two here that we should, uh, we might want to take a gander at. So firstly, we have Project Eternity. So this is an RPG project paying homage to some of the great kind of later 90s PC RPGs like Baldur's Gate, Icewind Dale, and Planetscape Torment, some of which I may actually cover on the show in the future. So if you enjoyed those games, check this project out. It's got a Kickstarter page that I'll link in the show notes. Still got quite a bit of time left, so definitely uh, take a look at that. The second one is called Sword of Fargol 2. Now, the original Sword of Fargol was a roguelike dungeon crawler on the Commodore 64. Now, these roguelike games seem to be making a comeback right now, and uh, frankly, until very recently, I had no clue what that actually meant. So, of course, uh, to figure it out, I googled it. So, a roguelike RPG or game uh, generally refers to a dungeon taller, dungeon crawler. Sorry, <laughs> I just got in from a run, so I'm still a little bit frazzled. Uh, just so it refers to a dungeon cr- dungeon crawler type game, though that's not necessarily a requirement. Uh, it's characterized by permadeath randomized levels, and a tile-based kind of environment. Uh, It's named for the first type of game in the genre called Rogue, which came out back in 1980. So if if you do like roguelike games like that, uh, again, go and check out Sword of Fargol 2. And of course, I will again link that particular Kickstarter project in the show notes. Finally, in the news, we have uh, the XCOM Enemy Unknown demo, is actually right now available on Steam, and uh, the game comes out pretty soon as well. So I haven't had a chance to check out the demo personally, but some online friends of mine have tried it out, and the reviews are generally good, aside from uh, some complaints that the demo is really quite short, and uh, it doesn't really give you a very deep understanding of how the game plays kind of mission to mission. I believe the demo only uh, only display or only lets you play through a single mission. So uh, the full game becomes available October 9th. Hopefully I'll have a bit more of an opinion on the gameplay. Maybe I'll try out the demo soon enough. And hopefully by the next show, I can say a little bit more. Or if you have played the demo, please definitely send me uh, anything about uh, what you think about the game and uh, and all that to podcast at umbcast.com. So news over with, I got uh, a couple of emails. So two items are in the the email inbox this week. Firstly, we have an email that came in from Tomas shortly after the last show came out. So Tomas writes, Hey there, this is the first time in my life I write an email to a guy who makes a podcast. Just to say thanks, the podcast is awesome. I've been listening to other retro podcasts podcasts like Retronauts and so on, but neither talk about DOS games, which is what I played during my childhood, from Doom and Duke Nukem to Transport Tycoon or X-Wing vs. TIE Fighter. It is so cool to take my dog for a walk while I'm listening to your show. It brings... Memories of awesome gaming, also terrible memories on managing memory issues with bat files and so on. So keep it up. I will keep listening. Cheers. 
P.S. By the way, I'm Spanish, so you can brag about your podcast going international. Well, thanks so much for that, Tomas. Uh, it actually is really cool to hear, you know, that there are people from from different countries listening to uh, listening to the podcast and all that. And you know, I'm 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 happy that uh, you and others that that listen to the show really do get some some fond memories about it, even though it may drag up some uh, some frustrating memories of. You know, trying to manage memory and and doing all that. I think when we look back on those, it may have been frustrating at the time, but you know, now it's kind of a fond memory of oh yeah, I remember when I had to do all that junk with MemMaker and load my mouse driver in high memory, and I didn't need my CD-ROM driver and all that. And you know, yeah, it was frustration, but I think that was kind of part of part of the time and 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 all that. So thanks a lot for that email. So secondly, we have a voicemail from Martin. So I will play this one right here. Take it away, Martin. Hi, I'm uh, Martin Solis, and this is my Command and Conquer story. When I was very young, my parents were separated, and so I didn't get to see a lot of my father. And the times that I did get to see my father, we spent a lot of time playing video games together. And uh, my father had a very large collection of video games, and uh, I was starting to get around the age where I was starting to understand how to use computers and how to navigate a computer and how to start up video games on a computer. And so my dad started teaching me uh, about computer games. And one of the games that he used to play a lot with his friends at uh, his work was Red Alert. And I remember him pulling up a chair next to me or me pulling up a chair next to him and him going through the entire game for about an hour just playing show me how it works not really going in depth because you know I'm a kid I'm gonna forget half of it anyway and then I just sat down with the game and started playing with it and it was my very first RTS game and I had never played anything like it before the the everything I played on a, on a computer was uh, a little bit more straightforward like an x-wing or I was flying an x-wing fighter so having to build a space keep track of all the stuff uh, build defenses and walls and resources was all new and awesome and I just fell in love with the game and uh, me and my father would, would play this game all the time via the LAN uh, we would spend countless hours at work or at night countless uh, weekends together while I was visiting him just playing this game and it's one of the best things that I can really call from my childhood. And to this day, when when I boot up Red Alert, I still feel like I'm back in my uh, in my chair in my, in my special computer that he built just for my visitations. And uh, like I'm playing Command and Conquer, and he's in the house with me somewhere on another computer in the land. And uh, it still feels like that that same treat that I get to play every year because uh, I didn't get to play a red alert in mom's house I didn't have the capacity to so you know once a year during summer vacation I got to play red alert and it was really fun and I still get that feeling today but of course my father couldn't be there 100% of the time even at visitation and while he was at work uh, during the babysitter uh, visits I would play single player and I always play with the Soviet disc because my dad would always play with the Ally disc. Don't ask me why it's like that. It's just the way it was. And I started playing the Soviet missions. And I remember just how brutal the missions were because I had been used to be pl to playing, you know, contemporary games where the protagonist was obviously a hero like Mario, X-Wing, Dark Forces, these types of games and to be told by Stalin, which I had no idea who he was historically, he just seemed like a very intimidating guy, to kill this village of innocent people and then to follow that up with a FMV of yaks shooting up this village and a teddy bear falling on the ground and I had caused that was mind-blowing to a, like, a seven and eight-year-old. Like, this was... It made me feel like a big kid. It made me feel like an adult. Like I was watching something and playing a game that was pushing the boundaries of what I thought video games and storytelling could be. 
and the, to this day, I've never had a game have that much impact on me other than another Command & Conquer game that was introduced to me while I was going through my dad's old archives of video games. And uh, my dad had a lot of video games, and I had picked up this old crate of CDs and instruction manuals and, and the like, and um, I found this game called Command & Conquer. And I kind of sit there and scratch my head and, and you know, Command & Conquer, you mean, don't you mean Command & Conquer Red Alert? There's only one Command & Conquer, oh, naive me. So I pick, look at the instruction manual, look at it, and it looks pretty neat. It looks interesting and, and different. And I asked my father to you know, install it for me, and he doesn't really want to. He, he, he says that it's, it's an earlier version of Red Alert. That's exact words. It's, it's an earlier version of Red Alert, and it's old, you won't like it. And of course, I'm an honorary little kid, and when my dad's at work, I try to install it myself, and I end up blowing up his computer. And so my tenacity won through eventually, and he installed the game for me. And I found almost immediately that this game had a, such a different feel to it. And I'm not just talking about gameplay-wise, I'm talking about presentation. From the moment you install the game, and the game first boots up, and you get that seek that uh, that that TV sequence that you were just dis discussing in the podcast, and uh, you're suddenly given this choice between two icons. You got a gold bird and a red scorpion, and of course, I chose the red scorpion. And being a little older at the time, around ten, I was expecting uh, something similar to what I played in the Soviets because. Obviously, the Seth character was pretty shady. The, the Brotherhood that I was working for was setting up this other faction called GDI to uh, uh, setting them up to look bad. And I had, you know, I wasn't very good at the game, so I, I would go back and forth between GDI and Nod, and they would always be talking about Kane. You know, you know, Kane this, Kane that. You know, this comes from these orders come from Kane himself, and. You know, I he was omnipresent but never shown. And, uh, and then one time, you know, Seth comes up on screen and says he's got a secret mission for me that not even Kane knows about it, and that you know he, he, I have to attack the Pentagon. And I thought it was pretty cool because my dad worked with the Pentagon at the time. So I'm getting all excited, and uh, you know, I guess this Kane character is not really going to be in the game. And then uh, out of nowhere, a hand comes up with a gun and fires right into Seth's head. Dead. Blood. Everywhere. Pretty shocking for a 10-year-old to see something like that. And this man comes up, shoves the body onto the floor, and it's Kane. And that had another massive impact on me. Because here is Kane introducing himself by killing your commanding officer and then promoting you. And these two games I ended up playing for, for years to come with my father over Westwood Online, modem play with my friends, uh, all throughout Tiberian Sun, and, and onwards. And it's just one of those things in my life that when I think Command & Conquer, I think of my father, and I think of the good times that I had. And, uh, and uh, that's what Command & Conquer means to me. On a side note, I, too, messed with the themes on my computer as well. I had the Red Alert theme, where it would boot up and it would it would tell me to take out power plants or something like that and I had this really awesome promotional screenshot that was you know impossible for it to look that good in game and whatever and actually right now I'm actually using a Tiberian Sun skin that came with the CD and it still works with Windows 7 and uh, it's pretty neat so much Martin that's just awesome it's really awesome that that you know and it's a cool thing that, that that certain games and even just certain things, I mean, it doesn't just have to do with, with games, but certain elements of your life, you know, you remember based on when you first experienced them and what the situation was and all that, you know, that Command and Conquer can make you think of good times with your father, even through the, the very hard and very horrible situation of, you know, your parents being separated and all that, and that you could pull some something positive out of out of all that, just, you know, because you and your father sat together and played Red Alert and it's just, it's really great. And I love hearing memories like that, you know, about these old games. And, you know, I'm sure games today have the same 
impact with, with, you know, the kids of today and, and all that. And you also bring up another interesting point of, you know, being, depending on how old you are, you come into a game series kind of not necessarily right at the beginning. And, you know, like that happened to me with say space quest. I, the first space quest I played was space quest four. And then I played space quest five and I played space quest six. And I think it took quite a while for me to go back and play the first three and, you know, you kind of think the same thing, like, oh, these are older, they won't be as good, the technology won't be as great, and all that. But it turns out that Space Quest Three ended up being my favorite Space Quest of of all of them, even though it is decidedly lower tech, lower res, uh, you know, lower sound quality, lower, you know, there's still a parser interface and all of that. But, you know, it really... I, I grabbed onto that game much more just for some for some reason. And, you know, it wasn't the first one I tried. It was older than the first one I tried. And, you know, despite that, I, I loved it all that much. So thank you very much for that voicemail. It was really, really great. And, uh, you know, I'd love to get more people's voicemails like this, memories of these games, memories of what the games mean to you in particular, and, um, and everything like that. I said it before, I'll say it again. Podcast at umbcast.com. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for So, I've been on a little bit of a kick the last few episodes. I don't mean to hit so many of my very favorite game series in a row, but for some reason, I've done just that the last two weeks. The last time around, we talked Mech Warrior, which I hope everyone enjoyed. I had such a great time doing it, but it also spurned me to go back and start reading some of the old Battletech novels. Uh, that I haven't read yet, which uh, I'm enjoying immensely. And again, this week, I decided to cover one of my very favorite adventure games from Sierra, Gabriel Knight. So Gabriel Knight is a great series of three point-and-click adventure games developed and published by Sierra Online. The first game, Gabriel Knight, Sins of the Fathers, was released in the year 1993. As usual, I'll focus mostly on this first game in the series and get on to the others, you know, if if we have time. The genre. There isn't much to say regarding the genre of this game. It's a Sierra adventure game. By 1993, the paradigm of Sierra's 2D point-and-click SCI adventure games was pretty fairly well established. Uh, as we discussed before with Space Quest, Sierra's adventure games require the player to complete a main story quest in a relatively linear manner by interacting with environments, characters, and objects in the game world. Unlike most other Sierra adventures, however, there aren't really any points where you can play yourself into an unwinnable corner by forgetting to do something critical. This is due mostly to the game's structure, which we'll get into in a moment. Uh, There are a few places where Gabriel can die, but these are very, very few and far between. So unlike, you know, Space Quest, where you could die basically every five minutes, uh, in Gabriel Knight, there's really only one sequence where you have the ability of, uh, of dying. So with that in mind, Gabriel Knight is, on the surface, and even deep down to its core, a fairly standard point-and-click graphical adventure game. So why is this one of my favorite 90s adventures? Simple. It is compelling. The setting, the story, the characters, the writing, and the voice acting are all top-notch. With that, let's talk a little bit, actually a lot, (laughs) about the story. Uh, As a bit of a general overview, the game follows Gabriel Knight, novelist and proprietor of St. George's Rare Books, located in the famous French Quarter of New Orleans. He's charismatic, sarcastic, and apparently quite a hit with the ladies, all except his sole employee and research assistant, Grace Nakamura, who actually runs his failing bookshop day-to-day. So as the game's intro plays, we are presented with a strange assortment of imagery set to music. We see a group of men standing around a group of large bonfires. One man stands especially close to the flames. A woman is tied to a stake being burned alive in the fire. Amidst the flames, She lowers her head to look him in the eye. He steps back, surprised. He stares, horrified at the scene before him. We then cut to a close-up of his eyes, the fire reflected within them as he continues to watch. Cut to the woman, burning away in the flames. A tear rolls down the man's cheek. We don't know who these people are or what's really going on, but the woman's death is certainly affecting the man. Suddenly something changes and the man's eyes widen. The woman stares at him through the flames, features filled with rage. 
she transforms into a leopard with glowing red eyes. Elsewhere, a strange golden medallion flies through the darkness. It comes to a stop, filling the screen where it's splashed by blood. We're then taken outside an old building at night, swooping around the corner to show us we are on Bourbon Street in New Orleans. Cut back to the man, staring in horror. A snake is wrapping itself around his neck. He doesn't notice it until it's too late. Back in New Orleans, we approach the door of a rare bookstore. The door opens and we swoop inside. Elsewhere, against a stormy purple backdrop, a man hangs dead from a tree. We zoom in on the face and we see that it is Gabriel Knight. Gabriel, asleep in the darkness of his room, wakes up screaming. This is not the last time we experience Gabriel's recurring nightmare. So, as we can see, from right from the start, this game won't be light and fluffy. There's some disturbing imagery right from the beginning. So the events in Gabriel Knight, Sins of the Fathers, span 10 days. Most days begin with an early morning scene outside St. George Books. Gabriel's Harley is parked outside. The paperboy drops off the New Orleans Times Picayune, which, which, which Grace picks up as she comes into work early in the morning. One verse of a poem is written along the bottom of each of these morning scenes. Each day has its own verse, but it isn't there just for fun. This, po- this poetry verse gives you a subtle preview of events that will befall you that day. And while it seems vague at the time, in hindsight, the verse makes perfect sense. Day one's poetry verse goes, I dreamt of blood upon the shore, of eyes that spoke of sin. The lake was smooth and deep and black, as was her scented skin. After this, we cut into St. George books, and we meet both Gabriel and Grace. As we've just observed, Gabriel is recently post-nightmare. Gabriel is voiced by Tim Curry, who we know from things from such, uh, such wonderful films as the Rocky Horror Picture Show, uh, you know, among many other things. Grace is voiced by uh, Leia Remini from uh, The King of Queens, Old School, and lots and lots of other stuff as well. So here's kind of the first scene between Gabriel and Grace. Mm-hmm. I bet. Just a minute. It lives, I see. Do you want to speak with Lolita? I'm sorry, but Gabriel is allowed. Oh, I mean, he's out. Yeah, if he ever comes back, I'll tell him. You know, you could do better. I know I don't know you, but you could do better. Good morning. The phone's been ringing off the hook all morning. Let me know when you want your messages. Yeah. Gee, you're lively. Did you have another nightmare last night? Sort of. Mm-hmm. I told you it's that voodoo book you're researching. That stuff can seriously screw up your karma. I'm sure that's it. Maybe I should write a horror novel on passive resistance instead. <sighs> so don't sleep. It's your body. Anyway, your handheld tape recorder came today. Really? Great. I can't wait to see what human rights you violate with this one. I can't wait to violate them. For example, if you would just let me... And I located some local voodoo references for you. Dixieland Drugstore and the Historical Museum of Voodoo. Both are right here in French Quarter. How would I ever manage without you? You? Give me a break. The devil himself couldn't change you. Well, if the devil had great legs, perhaps. Like yours. And a riveting personality, I'm sure. Well, if you need any more research done, just ask. It's not as though we're swamped with customers. So that kind of gives you an idea of where things start off. Gabriel is researching a book about voodoo. Is that what's causing his nightmares? Uh, Maybe, maybe not. Uh, Since the story and gameplay of this game are hugely intertwined, I may as well go into the controls and mechanics while I'm explaining things here as well. Uh, As I said, Gabriel Knight came onto the scene at the height of adventure gaming's popularity, and it has a fairly standard adventure-style interface. Along the top of the screen is a drop-down menu bar containing icons such as walk, look, pick up, open or move, ask, talk, operate. Some of these controls, such as talk and move, are only useful in very specific situations. Generally, when you're looking to converse with someone, you use the ask action instead of talk. Talk is more like casually speak with someone, which will generally result in Gabriel saying something either charming, 
witty, or sarcastic, depending on who the recipient is. It's more there for color and comic relief than for actual, you know, gameplay. Another voice we hear throughout the entire game is the narrator. She, of course, provides all the framing and explanation of environments, objects, and details about Gabriel's actions, which, in a game that isn't voiced, you would otherwise have to read yourself. The narrator is voiced by the late Virginia Capers, a very well-known actress who's appeared in many film and TV productions, including Saint Elsewhere, Murder, She Wrote, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, What's Love Got to Do With It, and, and much, much, much more. Check her out on IMDb. Uh, she lays on quite a thick accent for her role as the narrator, and I feel it fits the New Orleans setting wonderfully. Here's an example of her narration. Times Picohune, dated June 18, 1993. The front page has an article about the voodoo murders. The article says that the victims are all identified as members of the underworld. The general public of New Orleans is in no danger. Police claim the so-called voodoo trappings found at the crime scenes are fake, a scare tactic, and that the murders are not associated with any genuine practitioners. Gabriel also scans the Aquarius horoscope for the day. Potential storms ahead. Proceed with caution, and do not get involved with anything new at this time. <laughs> right. So as we hear, not only is Gabriel researching a book on voodoo, there's a rash of supposed voodoo murders taking place in New Orleans. Gabriel, of course, has a vested interest in finding out more about these murders. Luckily, his childhood friend is the detective in charge of the voodoo murders case. Grace tells Gabriel that his friend Detective Mosley has some photos for him over at the precinct and that he should go and pick them up. Also, a strange man named Wolfgang Ritter has been calling from Germany for Gabriel, and also his grandmother has been asking him to stop by her house. With these messages in hand, Gabriel leaves the bookshop. So travel from place to place in the game is performed by a, via a street map of New Orleans. Gabriel starts off in a zoomed-in view of the French Quarter, containing quite a few initial landmarks, including his bookshop, St. Louis Cathedral, the historical Voodoo Museum, Jackson Square, the Dixieland Drugstore, and, and others. There is also a zoomed-out view of, uh, of a larger New Orleans map, allowing Gabriel to venture outside the confines of the quarter. Gabriel can head to any of these locations he wishes. Each day has a certain number of mandatory stops which move the plot forward. So this is kind of the mechanism by which you can't really get into, you know, into a, an unwinnable state because you kind of have these mandatory steps that need to occur each day for you to proceed to the next day. So that tends to you know, cause you to perform everything that's required and not get into a spot on day eight where maybe you didn't do something on back in day two that causes you to, uh, to not be able to finish the game. So on this day, uh, the steps are easy enough to figure out based on Gabriel's messages as communicated by Grace. He has to swing by the police station to see his good friend Detective Mosley and stop off at his grandmother's house. Optionally, he can follow up on Grace's two voodoo research leads, the Historical Voodoo Museum and the Dixieland Drugstore. However, these can be done other days as well as they're not kind of the uh, required actions to complete the day. So at Grandmother Knight's house... We meet Gabriel's gran, a charming, polite Southern woman who raised Gabriel after his parents died. Uh, going through some of his dead father's old things in the attic, he comes across some curious old photos, which he asks his grandmother about. Do you know anyone named Heinz Ritter? Heinz Ritter? Oh, Gabriel, where did you hear that name? I found a letter in Granddaddy's clock. I promised I'd never tell you or your father, but I suppose it doesn't matter now. Tell me, Gran. Your granddad's name was Heinz Ritter before he came to America. He changed it to Harrison Knight legally when he arrived. Why did granddad change his name? I don't know. I tried to ask him about his family, his life before America. But he didn't want to talk about it. Never even told me about his name change. 
I found that one day when I saw his passport in a drawer. Since he obviously found it painful, I never questioned him about it. But I'm sure I wasn't troubled with the law. Your granddad was the best man I ever knew. So Gabriel also learns more about his mother and father and comes across some old German letters. While he doesn't understand them, he comes across a recurring word, Schattenjäger. He has no idea what it means, but it definitely strikes a chord with him, and he's not sure why. So after Grands, Gabriel heads over to the police station to pick up his photos and talk to Detective Mosley. Well, it turns out Mosley is at a crime scene. Gabriel, try Gabriel tries to get the location out of the desk sergeant, but obviously that fails. He takes his photos, checks them out, and leaves. Now, the photos are of uh, some of the victims of the voodoo murders. They're very ritually, ritualistically killed, and they have these interesting patterns kind of carved into their bodies. It's actually quite gruesome. Luckily, the game is low resolution enough so that you're not totally grossed out by, uh, by the photos. So, Gabriel needs to figure out where this crime scene is because he needs to find Detective Mosley. And also, he's a little bit curious to go and check out the crime scene himself. So, heading over to Jackson Square provides the opportunity to figure out the location of the crime scene. By distracting a motorcycle cop with a nearby mime, he's able to listen into his radio and overhear the crime scene is located at Lake Pontchartrain. Gabriel heads over, and this is where the story really starts to roll. The crime scene team is still at the site. Gabriel parks a bit out of the way and walks over to avoid adding to the general. Hey, mostly. Huh? Man, you weird. I told you not to call me that. Feeling jumpy? Who, me? Stupid. How'd you find me? Oh, I was just driving by. Mm-hmm. Well, for the book. But don't tell anyone I like to see this, huh? It's another one. As you can see, same M.O. and no freaking clues. We're still waiting on an ID for the body. That's disgusting. Isn't this a rather, uh, public area for this kind of thing? Yeah, they're freaking ghosts, these guys. Lakeshore Drive isn't exactly the 10 Expressway, but it is open to the public. No reports of nothing. Now, who the hell is that? Hey, Miss Getty. What's going on, officer? Detective Mosley, man, we've got a little problem here, but nothing for you to be concerned about, Miss Getty. I see. Thank you, Detective. And good day, gentlemen. Whoa, I'm in love. Forget it. That's Molly again. She's about as far out of your reach as the moon. Probably on her way to meet some guy with a yacht right now. Near here? Well, Lake's a popular place for country club. If she's out here a lot, maybe she saw something or heard something. Man, if nobody ever sees or hears nothing, I told you. Besides, you just don't go around bothering people like her. Here we meet Mosley, voiced by Luke Skywalker himself, Mark Hamill. And we also meet the rich beautiful, and mysterious Malia Getty, who just happens by the scene. Gabriel and Malia's encounter is depicted in a series of semi-animated graphic novel-style panels, similar to uh, the style of the, uh, the intro. Malia is in the back of a limo, and the window rolls down. Malia and Gabriel's eyes meet, and a look of recognition flashes across both their faces, despite the fact that they have never before met. So Gabriel and Mosley look around the crime scene, and Mosley eventually leaves Gabriel to do some investigation on his own. Uh, he finds a snake scale that the police missed, and then heads over to the station to interview Mosley about the murders. 
Mosley is so eager to provide all this information because Gabriel has told him the book would be based on Mosley and his investigation of the murders, despite the fact that Gabriel, in reality, has no intention of doing so. So after the interview and sneakily pilfering both Mosley's police badge and some confidential case files, Gabriel heads back to the bookshop, asks Grace to do some research on Malia Getty for him, in relation to the murders, of course, and thus ends day one. So I went through that first day in detail just to give you an idea of the depth and detail of the story. Compared to other adventure games we've covered in the past, Gabriel Knight's Sins of the Fathers is long. With a walkthrough, you could probably get through the game in 10 or 12 hours, figuring things out on your own, looking and interacting with everything, and kind of not doing things in the most efficient order can easily double that playtime to, you know, a good 18 to 20 hours. Regardless, the story progresses from here, spanning a total of 10 game days. Where we start off with Gabriel investigating the voodoo murders for his book, uh, he quickly gets drawn much, much deeper into a larger mystery. It seems that these ritualistic voodoo murders are being performed by an underworld voodoo group, practicing ancient mystic ceremonies requiring human sacrifice. During his investigation, he meets Malia Getty, and the two are inexorably drawn to each other by some strange animal attraction. Despite this, the more he delves into the mystery, the more Malia Getty appears to be involved. The murders also strangely parallel the recurring nightmare he experiences night after night. He comes into contact with a long-lost uncle, Wolfgang Ritter, who's been calling from Germany since the very beginning of day one. Wolfgang informs Gabriel of the definition of the word Schattenjäger. It literally means shadow hunter, and it is his family's duty and curse to fulfill the role of the Schattenjäger. Only by embracing this responsibility that his grandfather ran to America to avoid can he overcome the curse which caused the deaths of his grandfather and parents and end the nightmares which have plagued him his entire life. This curse is also the cause of the voodoo murders. Gabriel travels to Germany and Africa before returning to New Orleans for a, the final confrontation where he has to choose between love and forgiveness or fulfilling his duty as a Schottenjäger. I won't go into more detail than that regarding the events of the game. This story is truly special, and it really, really does bear experiencing. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... So, the Gabriel Knight series was groundbreaking in story. It was also quite notable in regard to its technology. If there's one thing that all three Gabriel Knight games did, it was showcase the technology of the time they were released at. I'll talk about the specs of the follow-up games in the dev story, but here I'll focus kind of more on the first game, which exists more in the time that I like to focus on. So Gabriel Knight Sins of the Fathers ran in 640x480 Super VGA at 256 colors. It required a minimum of a 386 with 4 megs of RAM and supported a wide variety of audio devices uh, of the time. The CD-ROM version, of course, required at least a double-speed CD-ROM drive. As I've already said, this game came out when both Sierra and Adventure Gaming were at their height. This game can be held up as the pinnacle of Sierra SCI games, and it was one of their last 2D 256-color games to be released you know, by the company. It was pushing the limits of what could be done in that particular game engine. The environmental art was beautifully hand-painted and detailed. The character sprites, while too low resolution to show an incredible amount of, of specific detail in the face and clothing and things like that, are amazingly well animated. You might not be able to see the expression on Gabriel's face, but when he walks out of his room in the morning after a nightmare, he has a wobble to his step and slumps over to the coffee machine in a way that clearly tells you he has not slept a wink. When you enter extended conversations with people, the interface switches to a close-up, kind of shoulders-up view of both participants. Gabriel is always in the top left, and his conversation target person is always in the bottom right. The two busts are separated by a listing of conversation topics in the middle. The art is amazing. These busts are not really animated, 
but uh, aside from some very good lip syncing in the CD-ROM version. So, you know, it's not just, say, like in Wing Commander where the people's ha faces and their mouths kind of move kind of haphazardly. It is totally lip synced to, you know, the voice acting. Many of the public environments in the game, such as Jackson Square, are very faithfully recreated in the image of their real-life counterparts. Aside from the graphics, this game was really treated like a Hollywood production. The sound was very high quality. Most outdoor scenes had background, ambient noise, doors made appropriate noises, and overall the world was very carefully designed to be as realistic as possible. Uh, the soundtrack, which you've been listening to throughout kind of this section, was great. It was composed by Robert Holmes, Jane Jensen's husband. Uh, the music is so well-crafted and appropriate for each and every environment and situation that it really takes the game from being good to being great. In reference to the importance of music to creating ambiance, Holmes stated in an interview the following, oh, and I quote, I, of course, think it's more important than anything else. Actually, I believe that one feeds the other. I have found with games as well as film and other media that there is a very interesting phenomenon that seems to occur. Great content, whether it's visual, story-based, or technical, seems to absolutely influence the quality of the music created to support it. The richer the emotion and depth in the content, the more the composer has to react and draw from. This was certainly the case with all the GK series for me. There were so many levels of great work to pull from in the stories, the characters, the visuals, the textures of the environments, etc. So yes, I believe it can help create the ambiance undeniably, but usually that doesn't happen in a vacuum." End quote. The vast majority of the game music was MIDI. By 1993, the general MIDI standard had come in, and uh, the MIDI music you're hearing in this podcast is recorded right out of my Roland SC55 general MIDI device. For the CD-ROM version, the main title theme was recorded to digital audio. That's the theme you heard right at the beginning of this section. So now, finally, we have to talk about the voice acting. Unlike all previous Sierra games, which may have had a professional voice actor for the main character, and uh, you know everyone else was just kind of whoever from accounting and it was all kind of a bit poor, Gabriel Knight again was treated as a Hollywood production. We've already covered a good chunk of the cast. So we have Tim Curry as Gabriel, Mark Hamill as Mosley, Blair Romini as Grace, and Virginia Capers as the narrator. In addition, we also have Star Trek The Next Generation's Michael Dorn as Dr. John, proprietor of the Historical Voodoo Museum, Rocky Carroll from Chicago Hope and NCIS as Willie Walker, and Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. from 77 Sunset Strip and the Batman animated series as Gabriel's uncle Wolfgang Ritter. The voice acting was top-notch and the sound quality was amazing for the time. Uh, you know, we can get into the realm of opinion with regard to certain performances. Some people feel that Tim Curry's New Orleans accent for Gabriel isn't very good, and others feel the narrator's slow drawl is irritating. I feel they're both fitting given the settings of the game, and being that I'm not from New Orleans, I don't really know what a New Orleans accent sounds like anyways, so to me, Gabriel sounds like the way Gabriel sounds, and that is more than good enough for me. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for development story. Okay, dev story time. I know I've muddled around in this show a little bit, talking dev story a bit and tech focus and mixing gameplay and story all in one, but <laughs> I'm sick and that's how we're rolling this week. Uh, as I've already mentioned, Gabriel Knight is the brainchild of game designer Jane Jensen. Jane was born in Palmerton, Pennsylvania back in 1963. She was the youngest of seven children. Uh, being so much younger than the rest of her siblings, she tended to play a lot alone as a child. Uh, her mother had a large collection of quilt squares, which she would use to create arrangements on the stairs in her house, swapping them around for hours into different arrangements and really focusing on small details. She graduated from this to building 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzles and other activities really involving great detail work. In addition to this attention to detail, or you know, maybe even because of it, uh, she grew up with a love of both creative writing and computers. She received her BA in computer science from Anderson University in Indiana, and soon thereafter started working as a systems programmer for Hewlett Packard, which was kind of the default job for relatively high-achieving computer science grads at that time. Uh, she was a big fan, though, of Sierra's existing game franchises, so on a lark, while she was working at HP, she sent them a resume and a short story she had written. She then forgot about it and heard nothing for a year. Then, out of the blue, she got a call. Sierra was hiring writers, and they liked what she had submitted to them. 
Uh, she was thrilled and immediately accepted the job and tendered her resignation at HP. Uh, she initially did some writing for Police Quest 3 and a children's game called Eco the Dolphin. Then her big break came. She co-produced King's Quest 6 along with Sierra legend Roberta Williams. Uh, King's Quest is likely the next Sierra game series I'll be covering, uh, but it's easy to say now that King's Quest 6 continues to be hailed as one of the best of the series, and Jane is credited as having a large hand in that success. Uh, this led to her being offered the chance to helm her own series. She drew on her interests of mystery stories, historical settings, and the paranormal to come up with the basic premise of Gabriel Knight. Uh, in an interview, Jensen states the following... I wanted a kind of modern-day Knights of the Round Table, and it was more interesting to start with a character who had no idea that he was supposed to be doing this. Graphic novels like Sandman and Hellraiser were an inspiration. The Schottenjäger concept was my own, though I'm not sure how original it is. So Jane tried as much as possible to create compelling characters that really, really got into our heads. Uh, she had the ability to make us care about these people very quickly by giving them real personalities, failings, and you know, just putting them in compelling and dramatic situations set in a very well-researched framework. Jane's major recollection on working on the initial concept and implementation of Sins of the Fathers was this. Sierra founder Ken Williams truly believed in artistic vision and giving his producers very wide ranges of freedom to develop their concepts. If he gave you a chance to create a game, it was your responsibility, but you generally only got one chance. If your game didn't sell, you never got to make another. It was a very unique environment, incredibly stressful for the producer, but incredibly rewarding if it worked out well. So of course, Gabriel Knight, Sins of the Fathers, came out to critical and fan praise. It really was one of the shining examples of what a compelling adventure game could be. It was well-presented, beautifully written and acted, with great music and smooth gameplay. It won Adventure Game of the Year in 1994 from both Computer Game Review and Computer Gaming World, and was 1993 Best of Show at the Consumer Electronics Show. So work quickly started on Gabriel Knight 2. Of course, the time of 2D hand-painted graphics was at an end. In 1995, The Beast Within, a Gabriel Knight mystery, released. A year after the events of Sins of the Fathers, uh, Gabriel has moved to his ancestral hometown of Rittersburg, Germany, to write his new novel. When the townsfolk hear of werewolf attacks in Munich, though, they compel Gabriel to investigate, knowing well his new role as the Schattenjäger. Grace soon joins him. While Gabriel follows a trail from missing zoo wolves to a mysterious men's hunting club in Munich, Grace conducts research back in Rittersburg and around Bavaria. Uh, her investigation lead to the history of King Ludwig II, the composer Richard Wagner, and a shadowy figure known as the Black Wolf. Eventually, the links between the cases become clear, and Grace discovers that the person in the greatest danger has become Gabriel himself. So there are a few big changes from the first game to the second. Full motion video had become all the rage, so this game was built on the tech created for the previous Sierra horror game, Phantasmagoria, and Gabriel and Grace went from animated to flesh and blood. Gabriel was played by an actor named Dean Erickson. Previous to this game, really all he had done was guested on a few episodes of Frasier, but you know, that's about it, and since this, he hasn't done very much either. He played Gabriel quite differently than Tim Curry did. Jensen felt that while Tim Curry did a great job of voicing Gabriel, he really didn't have the right look. Grace was played by Joanne Takahashi. Unlike the first game, playtime in GK2 was split between both Gabriel and Grace, so Grace kind of became went from uh, the plucky sidekick to a fully playable game character. Due to technological and budget constraints, though, the game was cut from eight chapters to six, and the actors recall that principal filming had to be done in a very, very short time. The director, Will Binder, expected actors to show up ready to pull up perfect performances and wouldn't run more than two takes of any scene. Also, all the game's voiceovers were recorded in a single day. Jensen also made the plot much more involved and complex than the first game, since the full-motion video-style gameplay didn't really lend itself to very varied interactions. Uh, the bulk of the game's complexity moved from interactivity and puzzle-solving to the intricacies of the plot, since the interface moved from having all the different interfaces and inventory items and all that to a, a much more simple point-and-click, hotspot, you know, single-action-icon kind of interface. Uh, despite these issues, the game was even more well-received than the first, being awarded 1996 Game of the Year by Computer Gaming World, in addition to many individual Adventure Game of the Year awards. 
Uh, Jensen really preferred the form, full motion video format despite its limitations. She truly enjoyed seeing her characters portrayed by real people and seeing how those actors kind of put their own spin on the characters. So after a one-year break, Jensen began work on Gabriel Knight 3, Blood of the Sacred, Blood of the Damned. Despite Jensen's love of full motion video, the third game in the series pushed on ahead and was to be designed in full 3D. Now by this time, adventure gaming was in a bit of a decline. 3D tech and the state of the industry wasn't entirely conducive to the classic adventure format. GK3 was set four years after the second game. The story in this game was the most ambitious and complex of all. Gabriel and Grace are asked by the exiled Prince of Albany to protect his newborn son from a centuries-old family threat, which appears to be a group of vampires. Shortly afterwards, the boy is kidnapped, and Gabriel follows the kidnappers to the mysterious French village of Rennes-le-Château. Gabriel's arrival coincides with that of a tour group, supposedly all in town hunting for a legendary local treasure linked to the Knights uh, Templar. Amongst the international tour group is Gabriel's old friend, Detective Mosley from New Orleans. Gabriel's search leads him to investigate the members of the group and search the town. Grace arrives shortly afterwards and delves into the history of the area to try and find the connection between the kidnapping and the area's rich history. Together, they uncover the truth behind an incredible mystery stretching back to the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, the game was built on a custom 3D engine called G-Engine. This allowed the player to roam around the game world and watch cutscenes from any angle they wanted. The complex engine, inefficient production, low team morale, and less than stellar performance of Sierra in general at the time caused the game to be delayed by a year. When it came out in 1999, reviews were mediocre. Point-and-click games were passé. Critics didn't completely pan the game. Jensen's great story was praised by most of them, but the genre's time simply had seemed to pass. Sadly, Gabriel Knight 3 was the last adventure game to be released by Sierra. Ah, the Upper Memory Podcast, one of the best podcasts around about geeky old-style gaming on computers. Well, we talk about old stuff as well. We talk about old classic television programs and films from around the world. So if that's your cup of tea or coffee, then why don't you listen to us? We're called Waffle On Podcast, and you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or at our main site, which is waffleon.podbean.com. We would be honoured if you'd join us. So what does the future hold for the Gabriel Knight franchise? Not to despair. There is a light at the end of this tunnel. Back in May of 2012, that being this year, Jane Jetson and her composer husband Robert Holmes got on the Kickstarter bandwagon with their new design house, Pinkerton Road. The firm is named after their Pennsylvania farm, which they intend to run the company out of. Uh, they've reached their goal of $300,000, with which they plan to develop two games, the first of which will be entitled Mobius, and it will be a 2D adventure-style mystery in the spirit of Gabriel Knight. Now, when asked if she'd create a new GK game, Jensen stated that if they can get the rights away from Activision, or should I say Activision Blizzard, uh, then she would be quite pleased to create a new Gabriel Knight mystery. So there is indeed still hope. I know uh, Al Lowe and the Leisure Suit Larry guys were able to get uh, the Leisure Suit Larry rights out of Activision's hands, but uh, until then, Jane and Robert will be releasing some great new adventures either way. You are listening to the Upper Podcast. So where can you get Gabriel Knight today? I am glad that I am finally able to get back to a game series where we have an easy way of getting our hands on them. I know the last two haven't been quite so straightforward, but uh, all three Gabriel Knight games are available via GOG.com for $5.99 USD each. They work very well on any modern system. Gabriel Knight 1, even you would use my Roland SC55 for music without any tweaking. Usually I download... The, uh, the GOG versions, and I have to fiddle with config files and all that and not use kind of the integrated DOSBox install. I have to kind of transport it over to my other DOSBox and do all kinds of little things. This one, nothing. It just automatically went for general MIDI, used my default device, and boom, I had really, really great music and the fun little display on my SC55 did things and, uh, and it made me happy. So $15 is very, very little money for what amounts to over 40 hours of great adventure story gameplay. Hey guys, I'm Kenny. And I'm Teal. And we're here today to talk about a brand new companion cast 
for a fantastic new web series called My Gimpy Life. My Gimpy Life is loosely based on my life and the awkward situations I encounter being an actress with a disability in Hollywood. Yes, and I'll be on set every day bringing you live interviews from cast and crew members. So stay tuned for the brand new companion cast for My Gimpy Life. So, as usual, big question of the show, does Gabriel Knight hold up today? Well, for me, they all certainly do, especially the first game. The setting, the story, the acting, I've said it enough times during this podcast, this series defined adventure games for the years in which they came out. The first was a pinnacle of 2D adventures, the second was the definition of FMV adventures, and the third, while it had its problems, is a great example of how 3D could be used to tell a compelling adventure story. And that's the strength of all these games, the story. I have the novelizations of the first two games adapted by Jane Jensen herself. They are great books and read quite well as novels on their own. The first book sticks very closely to the original game. The second takes a different approach, keeping to the same basic story, but telling it from a slightly different angle. Um, you know, If you want to know what adventure gaming was like at its peak, if you want to be intrigued by great artistic and stylized storytelling, then this game series is for you. I can't recommend it enough. All of these games really, really bear playing. Okay, so so that's that. Right, after I close things out, I'm going to play a very cool live performance of the game music from uh, St. George Books and the main theme from the original game. Robert Holmes himself commented on the YouTube page saying that he was honored that this group performed it. It is arranged and composed by, I believe this is pronounced Yanni Lassia. So uh, for another week, I'd love to thank Thomas and Martin for emailing in. If you want to drop me a text or an audio comment, send them to podcast at umbcast.com. Any audio format that can play on a computer, I can pretty much play it from your Android device, from your iPhone, anything like that. Or if you just want to send me a straight up email, that's great too. As always, thanks to Rick Moyer for his great, great audio work. You can find him over at moyermultimedia.com. You can check out the show notes and other stuff at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group over at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. We're having a lot of fun posting things over there. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. Me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476 if you want to hear what I ate for lunch. And, of course, subscribe to the show on iTunes or stream us live at Stitcher Radio. So next time, we head back to some tactical strategy with Syndicate. So that's that. Thank you again for listening, and we will see you next time for Syndicate in the Upper Memory Block.
battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.